Father, I have so much on my heart and my mind right now that I hardly um, know where to begin. Um, Lord, I know that I'm weak physically and spiritually and that um, that I need you. Lord, we, we are weak physically and spiritually. Um, God, and we, we need you sustaining us um, in every aspect of, of our lives. And so I pray, God, that, that you would do that, that you would continue to sustain us physically. More importantly, you would sustain us spiritually. God, that, that you would do this, um, of course, for our benefit, but, but more importantly, that you would that you would do it for your glory. Jesus, it's, it's my desire um, for all of us that, that we would know you more, that we would, that we would love you more, um, that our lives, every, every aspect of our lives would, would proclaim your grace and, and proclaim your mercy. And yet we can't do this in and of ourselves. Um, this has to be your work in us and, and through us. And so I pray that you would, you, would, you would do this, that you would continue this work. Lord, I know that you've promised in your word that you will, and yet it is such the desire in my life to see that desire in our lives, to see that, that we can't help but ask you to do this. And so we do. Lord, I thank you for, for those you've brought here today. We're, we're here Lord, because this is where, where you would have us. There is no other place you would, you would have us be this morning other, other than here. Um, for the express purpose of, of worshiping you through the proclamation and through the hearing of your word. And so I pray that you would be glorified as your word is proclaimed. You would be, be glorified as your word is heard. Jesus, we, we love you. Um, you alone are worthy of all of our praise, of all honor, of all adoration. It's, it's because of you that we're here this morning, but it's also for you that we're here as well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you would turn with me um, to Acts chapter 2. We're continuing today in kind of what's uh, really a four-part sermon, I guess, a four-part sermon series, um, working our way through Acts. And so whenever it was I preached last would have been, I'm I'm all messed up on dates and Sundays, but I began Acts chapter 2, verse 14, and I titled it Peter's Pattern for Preaching Part 1, okay? And so today we're going to look at part 2, and then we'll have part 3, and then part Four, and then we'll still continue on in Acts, but trying to make it kind of a, a cohesive unit. We're ultimately looking at uh, Acts chapter 2, at least in this four-part series, verse 14. And I'm going to read, actually, the entire text for you today. So I'm going to read verse 14 um, to uh, verse uh, 41. Now, today we're going to be looking at verses uh, 22 and 23, but I will read it all um, just to put it within, within context. Starting in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. 
For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. Then the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh uh, see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So again, I, I, I titled this, this series to this entire text that I just read to you, Peter's Pattern for Preaching, but I don't want one, the title, to, to fool you, okay? Um, what we're looking at, what we looked at last time, and I'll recap that in a minute, um, doesn't, doesn't simply apply to pastors. I know what the, the people think at times. Well, well pastors, pastors preach, right? And so if this is titled Peter's Pattern for Preaching, then obviously, you know, this isn't, this isn't directed towards me. Our neighbor across the street, our kids know her as Aunt Nancy. The first time I met her, really was the first time I talked to her. I don't remember how it got, got, the conversation got started. But what I do remember 
is, is her saying to me that she was a preacher. And of course, that kind of stopped me dead in my tracks because I thought, what would it was she? She's probably some crazy Unitarian liberal something or other. She she she's a, she thinks she's a preacher, right? And so I was I was kind of shocked, and I didn't know what to I didn't even know what to say initially because I didn't know where she was coming from and and saying this to me. So I just stood there and I listened to her, and then she began to tell me. She said, "Oh, I'll preach Jesus to anyone that'll listen." She said, "I was in I was in line at Walmart last week, and there was this guy behind me, and I just knew that he needed to hear about Jesus." And so I just I just turned around and I started telling him about Jesus. Right? That was what she meant by she was a preacher that she would she would preach Jesus to anyone. Right? That she would share Jesus with anyone. So though I've titled this Peter pattern, Peter's pattern for preaching, um, it does apply for you because preaching is just not for pastors. Now I could have titled this uh, Peter's pattern for evangelism because what we have in his, his sermon on Pentecost is this great evangelistic sermon. Okay. We also could have just titled it Peter preaches the gospel. So just a, just a reminder, even though I titled it Peter's pattern for preaching, I can say that three times fast. Um, it does it does apply um, to you. It applies to all of us. Now, just a quick recap of what we looked at last time, um, beginning verse 14 through 21. Um, it was this. It was that his preaching, right, and that preaching, evangelism, discipleship, right, because really we could, we could filter all of this through that. It was, one, to be bold, right, and, and, and unashamed. Two, it was to be biblically based or based on Scripture, and we saw that as, as Peter expounded upon the Scriptures. And three, it was to be gospel-centric. And, and we saw, as he quoted Joel, going from verse 17 through 21, he started to move right into the gospel. And so this next point, so those were the first three points, right? Verses 14 through 21, bold and unashamed, scripture-based, gospel-centric. And so this kind of third point in this, this, this series, um, we're going to actually narrow down gospel-centric to, to Christocentric, right? Christ-centered. And we see that Peter's preaching, right, his evangelistic efforts, right, were, were Christ-centered, right? And so there's, there's really four parts in, in this point, okay? And today we're just going to look at the first two, but I'm going to give you these four parts, okay? Um, as far as the Christocentric um, uh, uh, centeredness of his sermon. The first is this is his life. We see um, through verse 22 all the way down to verse 36 that Peter proclaims the life of Christ. He then proclaims the death of Christ followed by the resurrection of Christ, then the exaltation of Christ or the ascension of Christ. And so today we're actually going to look at the life of Christ um, according to Peter's sermon here, and the death of Christ. And then the first Sunday, Lord willing, of July, we'll look at his resurrection and exaltation or ascension. And then the final, the final series in this four-part, whatever, sermon um, is going to be um, the call to action or response. And we see both an implicit and explicit um, uh, call to action. So just to kind of give you an idea and where we're going and where we've been from 14 all the way to, I think I said 30, um, not 37, but 40, 41. So that's where we, we've been and, and this is where we're going. See, our, our preaching, our teaching, discipleship, evangelism, right, must be centered on and around Christ. Okay? Now, sometimes it's, it's explicit. In this sermon that, that, that 
Peter preaches, I mean, it's explicit. He's straight preaching Jesus, life, death, resurrection, right, ascension. Okay? And other times, you know, it, it tends to be, at least in our preaching and teaching, what I'll call implicit, right? Um, maybe it takes a little time to get to Christ, and I was thinking about that in relationship to what we've been going through in our uh, Sunday morning equipping time. We've been, we've been uh, addressing the issue of, of biblical manhood and womanhood, specifically centered around the, the construct of, of marriage. So as we're doing that on a Sunday morning, you know, we're talking about the role of a husband and the role of a wife, and we might spend, you know, 45 minutes talking about these various roles, and we never quite maybe in any given Sunday or this given Sunday explicitly get to Christ, even though throughout this whole series, right, we've made it clear that, that it is about Christ because marriage is about Christ. It's not just something that God gives to us for our benefit, but marriage is a, a living illustration of the gospel of Christ's relationship with, with his bride, the church, right? And so as we've been going through this marriage series, right, We've been addressing how the whole point of this, husbands and wives, as we get married and live our lives as married men and women, at least those who are married, is to put on display Christ's glory, okay? And so though, though I'm not teaching on those Sunday mornings explicitly Christ, 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 the point, as we've seen through this entire lesson that we've been going through, the point is Christ, right? And putting his glory on, on display. So again, Sometimes we preach and teach Christ explicitly. What we're dealing specifically about something in his life, about his death, his resurrection, creation, whatever the case might be. And then other times it might be more implicit or it might not be so active, might be, be passive. But again, the point is this. It's ultimately about Christ. If you, if you sit through a, a study or a sermon series or you attend a church or whatever the case might be and, and you never get to Christ, right, then whatever it is, they're, they're doing is not based on Christ and not because of, of Christ. I mean, Randy and I, we've often talked, you know, um, I've talked about legacies, right? Um, and there's some Christian song, you know, I want to leave a legacy. How will they remember me? Where Randy and I, I don't, I don't know who sings that. I don't really don't care. I think it's a terrible song because the reality is, is I don't want people to remember me. Okay. Um, I want them to remember Christ. The, the truth is, is a hundred years from now, you know, if the Lord tarries a thousand years from now, nobody's going to remember you and nobody's going to care about you, right? The only lasting legacy that we as believers can leave is the legacy of, of Christ. That's why it's so essential that our preaching, our teaching, our evangelism, our discipleship, everything that motivates us as believers and as a church, right, should be centered on and around Christ. Um, in verse 22, so we're looking at 22 and 23 today. So Acts uh, 2.22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So Peter begins by proclaiming the life of Christ. Okay? Now, he's preaching and evangelizing, right, to Jews. This is called the men of Israel, right? Familiar with Jesus. Okay? So he's proclaiming because they're familiar with him as a person, he's proclaiming the miracles, wonders, and signs that he performed while he was here on earth. See, there was no, there was no doubt to the Jews that he was a historical person, right? Whereas in, in our culture, right, we might have to fight that battle more than Peter did. But that wasn't, that wasn't a battle that Peter was fighting with these Jews, 
right? They knew that he was a historical person. And, and in fact, right, I mean, this just happened like months ago, okay? And so Peter was proclaiming these, these miracles, wonders, and signs that he performed. Now, now Jesus, and I'm not going to get too much into this, but when Jesus performed these signs, these miracles, these wonders, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't for the benefit of the recipients. I mean, they benefited from it, like those who were on the receiving end, right? But it was a, to prove, right, that he was who he claimed to be, right? Peter says that Jesus performed these things, right, to prove that he was from God and, in fact, was God. Just, just real quick, I do want to look at one. And, and the reason I picked this one is I, I was visiting a church a couple weeks back and, and he preached on this. And so that was the one that came to my mind. But just real quick, let's look at John chapter 2. Jesus' first miracle and or sign, right? Turning water into wine. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee, mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now where there are six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Uh, the purpose of this miracle, I and mean, there's much we could talk about. We're not going to because that's not what the sermon's about, okay? But there is much that we could talk about um, in, in this first miracle, this, this first sign. But, but the point of it was this, and his disciples believed in him, right? He performed this sign to establish, to demonstrate that, that he was who he claimed to be, that he was sent from God, and as Messiah, right, was in fact God himself. Nicodemus, uh, uh, you know, he also um, really proclaims the same thing. We see this in John 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, he's talking about Nicodemus, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So all these things that Jesus performed, right, that, that Peter's reminding these Jews of, okay, they were manifestations of God's power, not simply working through Jesus, but also from Jesus, right? These things proved that Jesus was sent from the Father as the Messiah, was approved by the Father, was in fact deity himself. He was, he was God. So, back in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, again, Peter saying, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man proven, he says, attested, proven to you by God, as having been sent by God, 
being God in the flesh, right? Proven with works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So practically, I mean, why, why, is, why is it important? I mean, why did Peter, why did Peter have to remind them of, of who Jesus was, right? Or seek to inform them of, of who Jesus was? Why is it important to proclaim and even understand the life of Christ, that is, who, who he was and how, and how he lived? Listen, it is essential that Jesus is, is God, that he is, in fact, divine. It is essential. And it is essential that Jesus, as God, lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law in every way. So here's the thing. Man, all right, and this is, this, is, this is a problem, though, all right? Man is responsible for atoning for sin. Okay, so this, this is why it's important. We're, we're going to try to, I'm, hopefully, Lord willing, I can string all this together. Man is responsible for atoning for sin. Why? Well, because man sinned. I mean, God's not responsible for atoning for sin because he didn't, uh, 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 he wasn't the one that was, was the transgressor, right? He didn't, he didn't sin. God didn't sin. Man sinned. Even in the Old Testament sacrificial system with, with the animals. And this is why, in part, the animals never worked, right? A, a, a sheep, a lamb, it, it didn't sin, okay? It wasn't a perfect sacrifice. Man was the transgressor. Man sinned, and thus man is responsible for atoning for sin. But here's the problem. Man cannot atone for sin. Only God can atone for sin. So we've, we've got this dilemma. Man is, is responsible for sin. Only man can atone for sin. But man can't atone for sin. Only God can atone for sin. So enter the one who can atone for sin. John the Baptist proclaimed what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here we have the God-man, right? Jesus the Christ. You know, again, Christ isn't his last name, it's his title, right? We're just, just, I think we need to, I always struggle with that because sometimes we just use it like it's his last name, you know, Jesus Christ, like Nate Carper. No, 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 Jesus the Christ, right? I mean, that's his title. And or Jesus the, the Messiah, the, the God-man, right? Man who could atone for sin, God who could atone for sin. See, when we proclaim the good news of the gospel, prior to addressing the death of Jesus, it is essential that we address who he was, God, okay, and, and how he lived, that is, that he lived a perfect life. See, if Jesus was not God and did not live in sinless perfection, then he never could have made atonement for our sin. This is why it's so important that, that we proclaim the life of Christ prior to 
proclaiming the death of Christ. I've got good news. Jesus died for you. Okay, well, maybe you've established that I'm a sinner, but that's a bad deal for Jesus. I mean, why, why was it Jesus that had to die? You know? Okay, so why was it Jesus? Why was it that Jesus had to die? Well, why, why would his death have been any more satisfactory than, than any, anyone else's death? Okay, so this is why it's important that we establish that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God the Son, perfect in every way, perfect even as sacrifice. Um, simply put, it's this. The good news of the gospel. So, so if you remember anything, just, just remember this. Um, the good news of the gospel begins with the life of Christ. I think often in Christendom, we, we, tend, to, um, we tend to view the life of Christ as just, just this example that we've been given to, to follow. Right? Like, I was thinking about that in relation to the moral influence theory, where, 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 where people, you know, think that, that it wasn't really Christ's death that was necessary for atonement, that, that he just serves to be a good moral example for us to follow. And when we follow that good moral example, um, we, when we repent and believe, then our, our sins are atoned for out of a result of repentance and faith. Well, well, repentance and faith doesn't save anybody. I mean, if someone says to me, how is a person made right with God? I'll tell you, well, you, you have to repent and believe and be saved. But it's not the repentance and the faith that saves anybody. It's Christ's atoning work. It was his, it was his perfect life as God fulfilling the law in every detail, right? Followed then by his perfect death, right? Evidenced by his resurrection, okay? So that, that's how atonement, atonement was made. We, we don't have the life of Christ in Scripture to give us a good example of how we are to live. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have examples there in Christ's life and in others' lives to say, hey, look at, look at Paul. Man, I, I wish that I, I would handle or could handle persecution like that. You know? I wish that I would respond to others like Christ responded. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not there, but that's, that's not the, the purpose of it. That's not the overarching point. Right? The reason that we have on display in Scripture the perfect life of Christ Right? is to point to the fact that his death was the perfect death. That is the only death that could satisfy the righteous wrath of God the Father. So we have to be careful right? as we, as we disciple and when we evangelize and really just in our own lives as we reflect on the gospel. We have to be careful that we don't, see if I can say this in a way, a way it makes sense, we don't want to sacrifice Right, Christ's life on the altar of his death, if that makes sense. Right? In fact, all of these points that, that we're looking at today, his life, his death, next time, uh, uh, his resurrection, his, his exaltation, right? uh, uh, really a call to response. Listen, these, these things are, are, are mutually inclusive. Right? You, can't, you can't separate these five things really in, in the gospel. Right? The gospel is about his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, and the gospel demands a response. Okay? If, if you leave out, as, as well as man's sin, which is on the very front end of all that, okay? if you leave out any of that, then, then you don't have a, a complete gospel. 
I mean, at best, you just have a, a, an impartial gospel, okay? At worst, you have a false gospel, all right? And so we have to be very, we have to be very careful in, in how we, we handle that. Now, having established Jesus as the sinless Son of God, let me say this actually before I go there. At the end of um, verse 40, or in verse 40, it says, In many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. We know that this, this sermon that Peter preached, like what we have, is probably a very small, like, portion of it. Like, if you just read it from start to finish, I don't even know how many minutes it is. It's like, wow, that was a real short sermon, right? I don't think it was that short. We know that Peter said much more on on that day. Um, and I was thinking about that. You know, there's much more I would like to say. I think I could probably preach 10 sermons on the life of Christ, uh, 10 times 10. You know, I mean, the reality is, is I don't think we could exhaust any one of these points. We could probably, uh, the rest of our lives, preach on the life of Christ or the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ or the exaltation of Christ. And we would never exalt it. In fact, exhaust it. In fact, in eternity, in heaven, we will never exhaust the, the mystery and the wonder and, and the glory of the gospel. And the only reason I bring that up is I feel so inadequate in going through this because there's so much more I studied. There's so much more I'd like to say, um, but, but for the sake of, I don't want to say for the sake of time, um, but for the sake of it being what it is, um, I trust that I'm saying what God wants me to say, and, and, and I guess we'll, we'll save more. We'll save more for later. But we know that there's much more that Peter had to say, and there is much more that we could say concerning all these things. Um, but having established um, Jesus as the sinless Son of God, God the Son, one can really then and only then begin to, to address his death. I mean, we really can't appreciate the death of Christ if we don't, again, understand the life of Christ. Again, sin, sin requires what? Sin requires death. Right? We go all the way back to Genesis. God says in the day that you eat of it, right, that you shall surely die, right? And it was a twofold promise he made to Adam and Eve. He said, it was a promise. He said, okay, so if, if you disobey me, right, and you, you eat of that fruit that you've been commanded not to eat of, he said, you're going to die. And in fact, you're going to die in two ways, right? You'll experience immediate spiritual death. That is, you're going to be separated now from God as a result of your sin, okay? And then you will one day experience physical death. But in that moment that Adam and Eve partook of that, that fruit and their disobedience, they experienced immediate spiritual death, and the process of physical death began in their bodies, right? Sin requires death. Ezekiel 18.20 says the soul that sins shall die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But again, alluding back to what I said even moments ago, death in and of itself does not and cannot atone for sin. Take a person, any, any person, a fictitious person. Let's assume this person lives his whole life and only commits one sin. And it's the most benign sin that you could ever think of, whatever that is, right? And that person dies, right? Even for that, 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 that simple one 
benign, small, itty-bitty sin that really seemed like a victim in the sin, which there's no such thing, because God is always the victim of sin. But, but in our minds, right, it was just a small sin. That person's death cannot atone for his or her sin, let alone anyone else's sin. Well, what about a I mean, what if we had a person hypothetically again that you know yes I mean we're, we've got a sin nature okay but but that person never committed a sin in their entire life yes sin by nature but never actively committed a sin nah, not that that's possible but but never committed a sin right and that person died could could that person's death then satisfy the wrath of God and sin be atoned for and it could not really for the same reason that, that in part anyway, that an animal sacrifice couldn't atone for sin. It, it, it does not and did not take just a, 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 I guess I'll call it a neutral righteousness, right, to atone for sin, which is what we would have in the sense of a person who, though maybe had a sin nature, never committed sin. What it, what it took was a positive righteousness. So, so Jesus was, was sinless, right? And as sinless, he was perfect sacrifice. But it wasn't just the fact that he was sinless that made him perfect sacrifice. It was his positive righteousness as God that made him the perfect sacrifice. And Jesus, in fact, was the perfect sacrifice. And his sacrifice resulted in the definite atonement and forgiveness of sin. Let's look at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Where we, we kind of see this play out. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have been ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure and I said, behold, why is that in part? I mean, I, this is just a thought. I mean, why, why, why did God ultimately, eh, probably multifold, but w- w- why did he take no pleasure in these offerings? Ultimately, because there was no satisfaction of his wrath in those offerings, was there? Uh, I mean, there, there, there wasn't. There was no satisfaction of God's wrath in the offerings of, of bulls and of goats and, and of lambs. Again, they were only a shadows of, of, of what was to come, of who was to come, right? The, 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 the perfect sacrifice that was to come. And because there was no satisfaction in those offerings, right? God ultimately took no pleasure in them. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of this book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. And these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for 
awe. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Listen, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ, and we're going to look at this next time, but his, his resurrection and his exaltation is God's stamp of approval, right? That the sacrifice has satisfied God's righteous and holy wrath. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies should, make, should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no, off, uh, there is no longer an offering for sin. See, back to Acts chapter 2, verse 24, in proclaiming the death of Christ. Peter says, I'm sorry, verse 23. Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God the Father gave up God the Son for the purpose of glorifying himself through the redemption of people. This, this was always God's plan A. Peter says it was predetermined and according to his foreknowledge. Now, by foreknowledge, he doesn't mean, well, God knew these things would happen. Okay, by foreknowledge, it means this. It means that it was preordained or foreordained. It was God's purpose plan from the very beginning. So God created and orchestrated humanity the way he did for his greatest glory. Okay, so I'm going to give a couple scenarios to you. One, God could have never created people, okay? Could have, however things were in eternity past, before, before God said, let there be, God could have never done that and God still would have been glorified, okay? God could have created man without the possibility for sin. When he created Adam and Eve, they didn't have a positive righteousness. They were at that kind of neutral state, okay? Didn't need saving um, when he first created them, but they weren't positively righteous, all right? But they had the capacity and the potential for sin. He could have created man with no potential for sin, Right? He, could have, he could have done that, never had a need for, for Christ to come as the God-man to, to atone for sin. God could have done that, skipped all of that, and he still would have been glorified. Okay. Next scenario, God could have created man with the capacity potential for sin. They fell according to the way the Bible says Adam and Eve fell. Right? He could have never have made a way for the atonement of sin. Every man, woman, child ever born, lived and died, right? would then have been justly condemned to hell as a result of their sin, right? Nobody saved, and God still would have been glorified. But from eternity past, and I can't begin to comprehend or understand that, neither can you. I mean, it, this was never a thought in God's mind. Think of it that way. This was never a thought in God's mind. From eternity past, 
God says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create man with the potential for sin. And they're going to sin. And they're going to fall. And I'm going to send God the Son to redeem them. I'm not going to redeem everybody. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redeem some people for me. And others I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let remain in their sin. And by doing so, right, God is receiving the greatest amount of glory that God could possibly receive. This was God's plan from the very beginning. And this is what Peter is proclaiming to these men of Israel, right? This was God's plan A from the very beginning. Now, God creating, orchestrating, preordaining all of this in no way makes God responsible for the crime of Jesus' death. He says in verse, again, 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What does he say? He says, you crucified. Right? You were complicit in his death, right? You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men, referring to Gentiles, right? So he places the blame of the sin and the crime of Christ's death squarely on the shoulders. In this case, he's talking to the men of Israel, right? But the reality is, The truth is, we're all responsible for Christ's death. I don't know if you've heard the song. Or it's not a song, but in a song, there's a, a clip of C.J. Mahaney. And he's, he's talking about the, the, the song or the hymn or the, the spiritual, the were you there when they crucified my Lord? If you've heard this, you know what I'm talking about. So there's this, this song, and it's going through, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And then they cut into this clip of, C.J. Mahaney, who's a pastor, Sovereign Grace Church in uh, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and he says, he says in response, he says, you were there, right? Um, not, only, not only watching, but you were there as an active, willing participant. You know, the reality is, is, is every one of us is responsible for Christ's death because it's our sin that put him there. God demonstrated his love for us. This is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his love for us in that we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Seems to be a paradox, doesn't it? Um, I mean, to us it's a paradox. To God, excuse me, to God I think it makes perfect sense. Um, God planned it. Okay, he did. God planned it, and yet we committed the crime. Right? We get the blame, and God gets the glory. Right? So that in and of itself is like a paradox. He planned it. We committed the crime. We're responsible for the sin of Christ's death. Right? God gets the glory in what was accomplished Christ's death and through Christ's death. Again, we get the blame for the crime, 
But here's the part that really just blows me away. We, we get the benefit as a result of all of this. He planned it. We committed it, and we're guilty of it. He gets glorified, and yet we gain as believers, not everyone, but as believers, those who repent and believe, right, turn from their sin and, and trust Christ alone as Savior and Lord. But, but we gain. And so we're going to look at that more over the next really two sermons. So next time we're going we're gonna to look at his resurrection, his exaltation. And the final one, we're going to look at the fact that the gospel, and the preaching of the gospel demands action and a response, even if it's not explicit. The gospel in and of itself implicitly demands a response. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gospel, um, the entire gospel. Thank you for Christ, um, for his life, his, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. Lord, we thank you for salvation. Um, God, you, you would have been you would have been just in, in never creating us um, and or in never saving us. And, and yet, as you even teach us in Romans, you, you choose to save that you might receive the greatest amount of glory. And for those whom you save, we, we gain and, and, and we benefit as, as a result. It's not something that we're owed and it's not something that that we deserve. In fact, even as believers, we, we still deserve wrath, but that wrath was poured out on Christ in our place. And, and when you look upon us now, you no longer see our sin, but you see the righteousness of, of, of your son. And I, I'm just, as I contemplate these things, I'm just amazed by it. And, and even though to some degree we can intellectually wrap our minds around it, we really can't. Because um, your, your grace and your mercy... Um, it's, it's truly unsearchable and it's unfathomable and it's, and it's amazing and that's in part what makes you God and us not. So we thank you for the reminder of the gospel that we've had today. I thank you, Lord, for the reminder of the gospel that we'll have over the next several weeks as, as we continue uh, in Acts. I pray, God, that, that, that your word would, would motivate us um, to, to proclaim the, the, the the gospel, to proclaim your glorious gospel of grace with, with everything that we are, with everything that we have, that you would continue to save many and that you would continue to sanctify all whom you have saved, all who you will save. Jesus, we love you and we praise you again for you alone are worthy of all praise and all adoration. It's in your name that we pray.